Welcome to a podcast on fire on From Beijing with Love. His name is Chow, Stephen Chow, comedy star turned director, and taking aim at the global phenomenon that is the James Bond franchise with solid sparklings uh, or sprinklings rather of his personal comedy stylings in From Beijing with Love, his directorial debut co-director, and he's from 1994. So here we are. My name is Kenny B, and uh, with me to co-host and add context and of course value to this uh, discussion you'll find my you're, you're gonna find my uh, good friends uh, paul fox and kevin ma so let's say hey to paul fox first of all hey hey happy to be here as always and let's say hey to tv's kevin ma he's ma tv's kevin ma <laughs> i've been on tv in years okay so it's okay i i remember it so fondly even though it is years years ago, uh, because I, I it's one of the few sort of stories I logged. Uh, long story short, uh, there was a movie called Asura released five years ago or so that was pulled from mainland Chinese theaters, and uh, CNN and BBC reached out to you to explain uh, the whole dealio. So you went on TV and you went on the radio, I believe. Yes, and BBC Radio has has reached out to me before. I think again after that about something else. But yeah, that was the only time I managed to get on TV as one of those talking heads, but not one of my. Well, I mean, it's a proud moment, I suppose, for some people, but not. You know, I do. I do have the the clip saved in Dropbox. So if you want to, like, <laughs> always after the ready in case Kevin needs to be shared up. <laughs> shared up. No, 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 no. If you want to make me miserable, please show me that clip. It's okay. I hate watching myself on TV. And here's the natural question. Did Asura ever resurface? No. No, because it's China and things just... It probably got written as a tax write-off. Just like... Uh, so Hollywood probably learned this from China. Not even on video anywhere? You think they buried it completely? Video. Nothing ever comes out on video anymore in China. That's, that's quite amazing. A, a big budget endeavor that... Um, well, we have to take that hit and... Uh, Forget about it. So it's a big fantasy film, right? It, it's a fantasy in many of the people who, the few people who saw it in theaters, yes. Which is, it, it, I mean, when you think about it, it's still kind of amazing. I mean, uh, there's been a lot of discussion over here about what Hollywood did with the film uh, Batgirl, basically for the same reasons, right? But with China, with all of the content they have on various streaming platforms, even some which are international now, a lot of the quality of that stuff is is way down at the bottom of the list so you would think that you know even if they've got this thing it would could, could just easily be fit onto any of these streaming services but they don't want to do it i, I think it's just a matter of face you know it's just too tainted that name you know that film's name is it's a global it was global news when it got pulled so i think it's just too tainted to to be out in the world anymore i think everyone knows what it is and they can't even like they can't even dupe people into seeing it. They can't even manipulate people into seeing it, you know. So, and, you know, how, how news travels really quickly on the Chinese internet. So they just don't want to bother the PR mess. Or perhaps the company has shut down. In true Hong Kong cinema style, maybe the company shut down. I, I have no idea what happened to that. Anyway, let's uh, get this going. Some brief contact information uh, from me, and uh, we'll do some plugging across the board. So for all your Podcast on Fire network needs, go to our website, podcastonfire.com. The catalog of uh, Podcast on Fire episodes with these guys, of course, uh, are all uh, on there. We discussed uh, throughout the years uh, a couple of the Wisely films and Fantasia, and me and Kevin have discussed uh, earlier on Hoi movies and so forth. So uh, you got an archive with these uh, boys uh, doing very well, and uh, we're grateful for them when they, when they do appear. Uh, social media links on the site and uh, all of that and uh, subs- subscribe to us on apple podcasts spotify or wherever you find podcasts all the p- 
people in the room are on shiny Blu-ray discs. So I thought we would take the opportunity to sort of uh, uh, plug that. So for instance, me and Paul, we recorded a commentary for the Taiwanese rape revenge nasty Kill Butterfly Kill, aka Underground Wife, the, the inaugural release from the label Neon Eagle Video. So that is out there. It's been a limited edition release and that's probably going to run out if it hasn't already. But a standard edition will follow of Kill Butterfly Kill. The disc features, um, over release rather, it's two discs. It features three cuts of the film. We discuss uh, one of them and uh, compare the versions a little bit. Uh, there, there is a home video history of note to discuss uh, in regards to Kill Butterfly Kill. So that is out there at the time of recording the movie Fatal Termination starring Moon Lee, Ray Loy, Simon Yam, Philip Coe. It's an action film. It, it also stars a little girl that is uh, held out of a speeding car by her hair. True Hong Kong cinema gonzo style a la 1990. That's Fatal Termination. I did the commentary along with Phil G on that disc from the label Error 4444. But we haven't talked about on on this show because the last time Kevin was on here, that disc wasn't out. You appeared on a Blu-ray, maybe two. But uh, I'm aware of uh, one of them. Uh, Was a Vinegar Syndrome that released Bullets Over Summer from Ip Man director Wilson Yip. But regardless, you did the commentary on that, Kevin. Yes, I I did the commentary with uh, Valerie So, a friend of uh, of ours, me and pause and yeah it's from kindly releasing vinegar syndrome is the website the company that sells it but the company that made it is called kindly releasing it's based here in hong kong they make a lot of uh you know new blu-rays of asian films that are kind of uh, a bit obscure so the latest release i think of hong kong cinema is uh, specked out by lawrence lau and they're also doing a couple of other southeast asian films and things like that but yeah i am on the my voice is on the connie blu-ray of bullets over summer I have a little history of, with that uh, film, not not a negative history, but I, I got into Hong Kong cinema, dropped out for a little bit, and then at the end of the 90s, I started picking up movies that uh, I didn't explore before. My main exploration was uh, Heroic Bloodshed, John Woo movies, and uh, Ringo Lam and Chai Fat and all of that, and then... Around 1999, DVDs were out. They were very cheap in Hong Kong. And I I don't know how I stumbled on it. But something within the review of uh, Bullets Over Summer, talking about the the acting and the action and it being a little bit quirky, fairly new director and a fresh voice, blah, blah, blah. Something told me I should check out Bullets Over Summer. And I was quite glad that I did. Uh, Becoming a fan of uh, a Wilson Yip that certainly doesn't exist anymore. You know, his quirky side is dramatic side that's uh, fallen to the wayside uh, being, you know, the face of Ip Man and many Donnie Yen films by this point. But I really, it, it's not a perfect film, but I, I think uh, he bettered himself with Juliet in love. But it's it's certainly just a very cool mixture of uh, some quirky comedy, some rather underplayed drama and uh, bloody action. And uh, these uh, kind of powerhouse performances by Helena Lolan and Francis and uh, Louis Koo coming in third in that equation, of course. But um, it's, a, it's a neat little film. I think it's uh, quite forgotten by now. So it's nice to see it uh, being revived. And uh, I guess it was nice to talk about it in the context that this Wilson Yip, we, we, we don't see of anymore by choice. So simply there, there's no room for small movies like that anymore. Yeah, it, it's, it was good to revisit that film. It's actually one of my favorites in that era around that time period, late 90s, I think, early aughts. It was one of those neorealist Hong Kong films that don't really show up anymore. I mean, they're not, it's not quite indie film. They're just made on small budgets, but by big, 
big companies that need to fill theatrical slots. So it was a very interesting project, and I love revisiting that film. It was good. We'll uh, link to it. Uh, hopefully that uh, DVD, uh, DVD, Blu-ray is uh, still out there. Hopefully it wasn't too limited, and uh, we'll uh, get, get a plug out for the commentary. So check it out, guys. In the meantime, we're going to take a music break, and then we'll be back to discuss from Beijing with love from 1994. Stephen Chow's James Bond spoof, and it's his first, at least official, foray into directing, and it's um, it's co-directed, and I'm sure we'll uh, talk of the co-director in a little bit uh, as well. So, but first of all, a music uh, break, and we'll see you in 30 seconds or so. And welcome back. So the movie up for review in this episode is From Beijing with Love. And the plot uh, goes as follows. Martini, swilling butcher and disgraced former spy Ling Ling Chat, played by Stephen Chow, is dispatched to, to recover a stolen dinosaur skull from a golden gun-wielding supervillain. Equipped with the latest gadgets, our hero dons his tuxedo and swaggers into a world of danger, beautiful women and metal-mouthed assassins. So they're hitting on the James Bond tropes uh, within that uh, plot, of course. Uh, so with this being Stephen Chow's first foray into directing, uh, together with veteran director Lee Lik Chi, who had made uh, Flirting Scholar, The Magnificent Scoundrels, uh, Love on Delivery with uh, Stephen, and other comedies like Once Upon a Time, A Hero in China, starring Alan Tam as a Wong Fei Hong. Um, shamelessly kind of infatuated with that notion that Alan Tam played uh, Wong Fei Hong. Uh, in, in two films uh, for Lilik Chi. Uh, but anyway, this team up from Beijing with Love and James Bond uh, parody, expectedly, because it's 1994, Stephen Chow had been the box office king for a number of years in a row. So, expectedly, this proved to be a big hit as well, if you look at the numbers anyway. Uh, Stephen Films dominated the Hong Kong box office uh, for several years in the 90s. He had the number one film across 1990, 91, 92 and 93, but actually had to contend with being third the year of 1994. From Beijing with Love earned 37 million Hong Kong dollars uh, and uh, it was trailing two other sequels in that list. Uh, Drunken Master 2, was at number two, and Wong Jing's God of Gambler's Return led the pack sizably with 52 million versus Drunken Master 2 at 40, and then from Baiting with Love with 37 million Hong Kong dollars. Uh, Love on Delivery and Hail the Judge, that uh, they are Stephen Chow vehicles as well, they also made the top 10, so obviously Stephen was well rep- represented in that top 10 list. So let's throw over to Kevin, I know he loves to talk about this, I also like the context of uh, box office throughout the year, so um, do you have any spontaneous comments, uh, Kevin, about uh, that number from that from Baby With Love tallied uh, versus uh, previous years, versus the competition and so forth, so the, the floor the floor's yours. Yeah, if you look at, uh, of course, Char and Fat had the highest grossing film that year, God of Gamblers 2, or Returns, I think, and Jackie Chan, Drunken Master 2. But if you look at that top 10, Char, uh, Stephen Chow had a total of three films. Um, that makes him the most, or that made him the most bankable star in that year. He had three films that add up to over 100 million uh, Hong Kong dollars, which is quite a feat for a single star. 
and especially with one of those films he directed himself. Uh, I think it's quite telling about how much of a workaholic he was at the time or how in demand he was. I don't know if he did it on his own volition that he worked so hard, but it showed, you know, what a force of nature he was in Hong Kong cinema at the time. And I can't be sure, but I think to From Beijing of Love was released for the mid-autumn holidays. So it was a big holiday slot. Um, so people naturally would go out to see the new Stephen Chow film. And of course, it is a very funny film. I wouldn't say it's my favorite of all of those three films that year. I think Love and Delivery is kind of the one I go back to the most. It's still my favorite. But, you know, it's a, it was a very popular time period um, because it's mid-autumn's holiday and it's just a very, uh, you know, f- fun film. And, and it's 83 minutes, so that means cinemas can pack in a lot of showtimes. And, you know, it's curious, Kevin, by the way, I just noticed now, uh, looking up the actual uh, release date, it had a, if this is correct, it ran for a long time in the cinemas, and, and, and I know hits do, but I'm not used to seeing numbers like from, in this case, end of September to beginning December. So it sounds like a quite extended run, but uh, again, I, I don't have tons of examples in front of me that says, oh yeah, it was common that uh, they ran across three, three months or four months. I don't think it was like a big wide release for all three of those months. I think the film must have started out well and... I think the last, you know, two months or so might have just been running at one cinema, maybe for like a, a show a day. Back then, cinemas, I think, were a little more patient in terms of keeping films on in the, in the screens, even though they were less multiplex back then. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was like one theater showing it once a day until early December. Um, I, I don't remember because I wasn't in Hong Kong at the time, 1994. It was one year after I immigrated. So I wasn't in Hong Kong when that film came out. So I wasn't sure how the, the, the release kind of went but from what i could tell in that sort of that release schedule if it's correct if it really did play in cinemas for 82 days it would have been like probably the last couple of month weeks or a couple last month or so would be like one cinema one show a day just a 4 p.m show in, in hong kong cinema especially back then it was famous that you know there were certain you know, reputation among where cinemas put certain films for example they know that the night show, 7, 7 p.m., 9 p.m., are always the biggest, the most popular shows. 4 p.m. show is sort of like the matinee, is sort of like the one where you just sneak, sneak in to get people to go watch a film at a cheaper ticket price. But I think it might have been one of those 4 p.m. Sh- movies that, you know, played for a long time at 4 p.m. It could have been, I'm not sure. You, you, you were watching movies in, um, in the cinema, Paul, um, when you were living in America. Like Hong Kong movies came over, but they, they were action films mainly, or, or did they actually export... Uh, some comedies ever and even Stephen Chow films we got a mix of stuff comedies you know I saw Stephen Chow uh romantic comedies you know Andy Lau and and Wong Jing stuff so uh but for us it was a you know it was a one night you know midnight showings one night a week was was their release schedule so yeah it was a you know it was very very limited uh screening runs I'm guessing if you were in Canada or out in California they had cinemas that would run these um, a bit more extensively. I, I, I do have to kind of question the the date, though. I, I don't know if that's accurate, because if you look at the other movies, like God of Gamble's Return ran for a, one month, you know, and had, a, you know, it had, had a much higher box office return. So I'm wondering if, if that might be... Uh, a bit of an error it could be like it could be like kevin said that it you know it kind of dwindled down to some uh, smaller second run um, theaters because of its popularity but 
the start date would be correct, right? In terms of Autumn Festival, September. So that yeah, means- that that seems more more than correct. And I'm just wondering if you know maybe it like ran until you know instead of they have it listed as a, a December seventh, maybe October seventh or November seventh. Well, the difference between from Beijing of Love and God of Gambler Returns is that when God of Gambler's Return ended its run according to that calendar, it was the beginning of Chinese New Year, the New yeah. New Year. So yeah. a lot of films get kicked out by then. But there's no big holidays between mid-autumn and near Christmas, I think, in, in, in Hong Kong. So like, there's yeah. no big holiday slot. So that's, that's the true. difference that's where, true. yeah, that's why I could stay a little longer. But I think I think in the terms, of, in, in the scope of things, it's definitely an outlier um, because that's very unusual to see theatrical runs that long, even for popular films. Well, I, I think number nine, um, and I don't have to, I think I have a date with spring. That's number nine that year. Yeah. That one was distinctly remembered for being a word of mouth hit. Um, that one was distinctly remembered for staying in theaters for a long time, and because it was um, adapted from a famous play, stage and, play, yeah, yeah, it was a stage play. So that one distinctly, I remember seeing in the press that it sort of had a big, um, it had a very good word of mouth, and it wasn't a hit in the beginning, and it sort of built over a couple of months. So that one is definitely true because I remember that film being sort of this yeah, word of mouth. Yeah. That's yeah. got like what a, a four month run or a five month run. So, yeah, I guess it can happen. Do you, do you know if uh, From Beijing with Love did come over to your haunts, uh, Paul? Uh, but you never know, uh, caught it at the cinema. Or... Oh no, yeah, no, I saw it when when they when they showed it over here. So you caught the luminous, uh, illustrious uh, midnight screening. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it was again. We were getting a show a week. If it was a if it was a big hit in Hong Kong, they were definitely bringing it over f- for us to see. You know, usually. Uh, a month or two later so um, we saw you know all the Stephen Chow stuff and any anybody with a big headline liner Andy Lau uh, Anita Moy stuff like that um, the smaller stuff we might not get so I grew up in San Francisco and that means we had at the time we had like two or three Chinatown cinemas and I distinctly remember watching God of Gambler's Returns because I went to that cinema and it was packed to the like there are people gathering in the streets waiting to get in i remember there was a fight breaking out in the line <laughs> it was it was you know you know chinese people trying to watch a stupid uh Charm fat film it was meant to get messy that's the thing i don't remember or i don't know why i never got to see um from beijing with love in the cinema i saw it on laser at home uh when it came out but the thing is it would have played in san francisco because we got all the new hong kong films and there was no way we were gonna miss a stephen chow film i watched god of gambers in those chinatown theaters so it was very weird. I don't know why I missed uh, from Beijing with Love in the cinemas. I guess we weren't because we were just sort of newly arrived in America. We didn't really look up how to get to those cinemas. I think God of Gambler Return was a, like first time we went out for a proper sort of night film in Chinatown. I think after we got to America. So I don't remember why I didn't see from Beijing with Love in in Chinatown cinemas. But I think you definitely got it in San Francisco. Anyway, for for in terms of the award season. Um... From Beijing with Love uh, was nominated for two awards at the Hong Kong Film Awards. Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor for Law Gaiying. Uh, but they lost in, um, it lost in both categories. The, the Night was dominated by Wong Kar Wai's uh, in-between movie, Shunking Express. Meaning, if I, I, if I remember this correctly, and I, I, God knows I forget these things. It was made during a break in the, uh, during the production of Ashes of Time, Shunking Express. Yes, uh, yes, that's right. So... Uh, the in-between movie by Wong Kar Wai, Shunking Express, that one, best picture, best director, best actor for Tony Leung, best editing, uh, best actress went to Anita Yun, 
for her performance, not in From Bading With Love, but for her performance in the romantic comedy, He's a Woman, She's a Man. And Best Action Design went to the Jackie Chan Stuntman Association and Lao Ga Long for their work, uh, their stellar work on Drunken Master 2. So if you had a chance to see that on the big screen at the time, guys, that, that would have been um, that would have been a blast. At least I hope so. Let, let me just ask a room. Maybe we'll uh, address Kevin first if you, if you know this from breathing the Hong Kong cinema air if From Beijing With Love has kind of lost its its rep it's a, it's profitable, sure it's a Stephen Chow movie, yes, but some movies from a busy performer they don't necessarily last because there's a whole lot of movies to choose from, but still did, did From Beijing With Love have a cultural impact? I mean, it's a parody did it keep getting referenced and did you know if it was liked by critics as well? Because I don't know if the critics were Stephen Chow's friend necessarily yeah, I don't know about critics. I I was reading, I, you know, I read Cine Entertainment Magazine, the f- sort of premier film magazine in that era, but I wasn't reading it yet at the age of 10. So I, you know, I read it a few years later. Um, so I wasn't sure about the critical response to that film, but it's certainly one of the most frequently referenced Stephen Chow film, especially in the last couple of years, because it is easily, I think, Stephen Chow's most political film. Because there's so many things in there that the whole film is about mocking, you know, mainland China, the communist government, right, and the communist government system, and the the people uh, at the time, and it played into a lot of stereotypes, for better or worse. For example, the idea that you know they they lack public manners, the idea that Chinese officials are corrupt, that people are similarly are, are arbitrarily charged and executed for crimes that they didn't commit, that you know all that kind of stuff is. It was made at a time when there was a true fear of what was coming in 1997, the handover, the arrival of the communist government. And of course, it has been even more relevant now in Hong Kong uh, since 2019. Uh, Many of the things in the film, it it, it sort of come back now, they come back as memes uh, in in the public domain or public sphere, uh, at least in the people, the circle of that I that I follow. Um, so it's a more relevant film than ever. You know, it's kind of one of those like Simpsons did it kind of thing for them. You know, it was like, oh, my God, Stephen Chow called it in 1994. Yeah, it's certainly one of his most more more referenced films in recent years. And I don't know if it will actually play on TV ever again in Hong Kong because it is so subversive in terms of what is politically correct these days in Hong Kong. But it is on Hong Kong Netflix. That's where I saw it. And it, it remains, I think, a lot of uh, remains one of the most often quoted films uh, of Stephen Chow's, and it is well-loved. Even though, I have to admit, um, when I was watching as a kid, I, for, the, for the longest time, I only watched the first half, because I think the first half, because uh, I watched it on Laserdisc, so we watched it on two sides, and I think the end of the first side is right after the mall, the mall shootout, which is, I think, one of the most violent, brutally violent things that Stephen Chow has ever done. And time is sort of, I was 10 years old, so there was no way that my parents or I wanted to sort of keep watching it. Just so disturbingly violent at that point that I didn't even know that the rest of the film would go that way. So, but yeah, it, it's still for what it is, for what it did in the second half. I think it's certainly one of the most referenced and most uh, watched Stephen Chow films among his fans uh, these days. Let me ask uh, a naive question then, knowing only surface-level le- surface stuff about uh, what is going on with uh, film censorship nowadays. I did I did buy the Blu-ray, so it seems like it's still the full version, but it has been rumored that movies that are subversive, that 
that uh, someone equals being a threat to the security of Hong Kong could be uh, cut up or held back from release or screening. So it is a comedy, yeah, but but, but, do, but do you think uh, in the future there, there's a fear of um, From Begging With Love not being able to play in its full version or, or at all? Right. It's never been legally um, released in its full version in China, even though I think there's a censored version traveling around legal, legally traveling around the Chinese Internet. But um, the thing is, it hasn't ran into trouble because no one has had to apply for a screening license recently because every you know films that have to play publicly in Hong Kong have to get a screening license, which means they have to go through censorship. And that's been the case for the longest time, for decades. Right. But because there hasn't been a public theatrical screening of this film it hasn't been sent to the censorship body or or the certificate is still is still valid so 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 even if they reissue it tomorrow you don't need to combine that with a screening permit is that yeah i, I reissue it on um, on blu-ray or, or in 4k a, a, a video release doesn't necessarily require a a uh, what you might call it a screening um certificate from the authorities only if you're doing a public screening of the film right then you get you get to get like a rating and that's something that every film has to do anyway that's something that's been done for decades but the thing is the film hasn't been sent through that process since the new national security term has was added to the censorship process so but it is playing on netflix and it's not illegal yet to play on netflix because that's a different that's outside that jurisdiction so I have no idea what's going to happen to this film, and I think no, no one, no one is going to try and apply for. It. Let's just say no one is going to try and apply for a screen license for this film in this day and age in Hong Kong. Yeah, because it's coming up on its thirtieth next year. So I'm thinking like uh, <laughs> we're not going to do anything if we can't. Uh, like, like there's no use risking this. Uh, yeah. D- despite a, a lovely number for a classic film uh entering its 30th uh, anniversary so i mean i'd be very surprised there are a number of uh, dvd releases uh, not just internationally but new dvd and blu-ray releases coming for old films these days but it already has a hong kong blu-ray and i just don't think i see anybody forking out the money to do a remaster of, of that when that exists and is already pretty readily available um, I, they just don't do that even, I mean, that's like a big thing for like Disney films and then, you know, certain cult films in, in the West and things, they'll get these anniversary reissues, but I can't think of any Hong Kong film that's had like a big celebratory, that's our 30th year release anniversary, you know, for, for Hong Kong cinema. Um, Kevin, can you, can you think of any that they don't even get steel books? I mean. So it's like it's it's a different kind of collector culture. Yeah, mindset. there is no collector culture here unless it's a film that has great audio and video. You know, like collector culture has has waned uh, quite dramatically because you know streaming is just so convenient. And no, like it's, I think one one person who has tried and done that is Wong Kar Wai. Wong Kar Wai remastered his entire filmography, but then he sort of went too far and. And went as far as recoloring, doing the new color timing on a lot of his films, and that pissed off a lot of people. So that's a different story altogether. But no, people tend to not dive in money unless you're like an art house classic, unless you're like you have the money to hire the um, that Italian lab that's here in Hong Kong. Um, and they've have they have their hands full because they're only one lab. And other than them, there's no no one else that's doing these remasters properly. So if you guys follow my Twitter, you see that there's a. Uh, there is Not a Chinese Twitter, it's X. <laughs> X. Uh, X, formerly Twitter, 
X, formerly Twitter, um, X Force, uh, that that has um, recently acquired, I think, the mainland Chinese rights. I'm not sure if they acquired the rights, but a streamer or I think TikTok, I think TikTok, TikTok and the China Film Archive are teaming up on remastering 100 Hong Kong films from the 80s and 90s, 100 of them in the course of a single year using AI. Uh... Yes, I know. And they're using the censored mainland China version of those films. Uh... I would not be surprised if From Beijing of Love is one of those because it is considered a classic from the 80s and slash 90s and it's a Stephen Chow film. Maybe they'll put their walkie-talkies in Stephen Chow's hands instead of guns. Yeah, yeah, or no one ever gets executed, or you know, the whole execution <laughs> oh, yeah. scene doesn't exist anymore. That's likely, actually, that's likely been cut out in the Chinese version. Yeah, I was about to say, if if any scene is uh, going to offend, then it's uh, the execution scene and how he ultimately gets out of it, I suppose. So. Exactly. And and would they cut that shot of Ling Ling Chut's profile where he's born on June 4th? Probably, if they, everyone spots it. If there's a new remaster of that film, that's probably is going to happen under that plan. But otherwise... Like Paul said, you know, people, you know, companies are just, there's so many films that they can't possibly uh, afford to fork out for like a decent remaster. So let's uh, speak of some specifics. Uh, we've shared some slight opinions of uh, what we think of the film, of course, but le- let's go a little bit properly around the room for a brief opinion, first of all. So, and, and as for me, I mean, n- not to say his previous films, his comedy acting roles were subpar filmmaking, but it's certainly nice to see that Stephen Chow teamed up with Lelik Chi here is focusing on delivering something big and kind of technically sound. Uh, it's not going to compete with a Bond adventure, but at least uh, the intent was to make it look like something big and expansive that that's similar in plotting to a James Bond film, however confusing they might uh, be at points. And uh, I think that is all respectable and that lays the groundwork for good spoofs and good dry, deadpan, wacky, bloody comedy mixture that, that we have here so and and it works also because it's uh, such a tight short package it's only 83 minutes long but but having said all of that uh, being you know uh, being infatuated with it being a big looking movie i think the smaller moments that just require a camera to film performers going back and forth contains the biggest laughs uh, but I, I still appreciate that the, uh, that the director's uh, uh, let their sort of a desire to make a big film uh, breathe as well. So, uh, but um, don't bring the kids though. This film is bloody, really violent, and rather gross at points. All without reaching category three, granted. But still, uh, if uh, if you're thinking Stephen Chow is this uh, innocent, uh, this innocent comedy film, uh, this uh, this is not for the kids. Anyway, quite like it. Liked it back then. Quite still like it. So let's uh, throw over to Paul. Who's uh, perhaps seen it uh, more than any of us uh, here, uh, half a dozen times over the years. Who knows? But uh, what did you think this time of from Beijing with love? It's classic Stephen Chow. It's perhaps peak Stephen Chow for this era because you have all of these sort of pop culture elements that are woven into this. Of course, you know, you think about uh, James Bond as a intellectual property um, has had a big influence on Hong Kong. And this, of course, is fed back into this film and over previous James Bond films. Right. You get things like the Aces Go Places movies, um, you know, nearly a decade earlier that were affected by that. You get uh, early Shaw stuff um, that was influenced by James Bond. And James Bond films themselves 
often used Hong Kong as a, a locale or, or a setting to sort of give him that sort of international man of mystery kind of vibe, right? He, I think uh, You Only Live Twice from 1967 was the first time that he was in Hong Kong, Man with the Golden Gun, which is a big influence on this film, of course, and um, also has a Hong Kong connection, and that uh, actress Yun Chu was in that uh, for a brief time, um, and she's now considered a Bond girl because of that small role. Um, if you're not familiar with her name, of course, that's the landlady from Kung Fu Hustle. So again, sort of feeding back into uh, Hong Kong cinema. And uh, then you get uh, later Bonds with uh, uh, Die Another Day. Um, well, I think he stops in Hong Kong for a, a scene or two in that film. And then, of course, Tomorrow Never Dies featured Michelle Yeoh as uh, another Bond girl who unfortunately never got the spinoff that she was supposed to get that was rumored about. So you have this culture because it was a British colony and because, you know, James Bond is a, is a British agent of it being used as as both a locale and sort of establishing this mythos of, you know, a British agent who can travel across British territories and do what he needs to do. And then, of course, all that building back into this film, because you have a villain who's, you know, very much like a kind of over-the-top Bond villain. He uses a golden gun uh, as well, and sort of all of that's here. I think that it's interesting, too, because you've got quite a few writers on this, and it's interesting to kind of see, like, and try and pick out once you know who some of these people are, like Stephen Chow, Vincent Kalk, and others, who's doing, who's writing what gags. And you talked about the darkness in this film, and I think that's definitely coming very much from Stephen Chow because you see the kind of dark, the, the, the bloody darkness that is here extend to other films that he does, you know, going into films like Kung Fu Hustle or even as recent as like The Mermaid. He has this this taste for sort of dark physical violence that he'll then juxtapose right next to very humorous scenes, right? Um, sometimes interweaving them together. So that's very much a, a formula that he likes to use. And he also likes to create these characters who are incompetent on the one sense, but also very awesome at the same time. And this is very different from, say, like, the James Bond spoof characters you get in the West, people like, you know, Maxwell Smart or Inspector Gadget, where it's like they're just kind of clumsily incompetent. But here with his character, it's like he's a bit of a braggart, but he's actually quite skilled, right? And and that also ties into, I think, some cultural aspects because of what he does with his little knives. It's kind of like a call out to... Um, the 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 main character from um, the sentimental swordsman or the romantic swordsman Logong Lo series right um, or Guling Gulong series excuse me you know riffing on the the sort of the Siulei Feido weapon right I, Kevin can probably speak a little bit more to that um, yeah, yeah so it's it, you know you get you get this kind of mashup of of great elements both international and 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 local that he's able to play with and and then you get just gags that just make me fall on the floor laughing like the the flashlight gag which still yeah we, we're gonna do our best to not spoil it but i think uh, one or two uh, uh belly loves de de deserve to be a reference that is one so uh, let's uh let's put a pin in it for now anything uh, you want to say first of all kevin in terms of a short opinion it was certainly a successful revisit uh, right and certainly doesn't um, 
overstate welcome at 83 minutes. Um, yeah, I, I'm certainly welcome that it's 83 minutes long. No movie should be over one hour. Right? I'm just putting that out there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am very thankful and I'm sure the theaters at the time were very thankful it's interesting because officially on record this is Stephen Chow's first directorial effort but the thing is actors have said over the years now I mean, because they're 20 years removed from the original film that Stephen Chow had been creatively in charge of his films at least many of his films since Fight Back to School even on Fight Back to School Gordon Chan was a sort of the guy who is branded as director, but Stephen Chow was creatively in charge of that film. And he has been, I think, many of those, from, especially the ones that are not directed by Wong Jing, because Wong Jing is known to be the one, the only person in the Hong Kong film industry who can rein him in. But I think otherwise, I think a lot of those films afterwards, after Fight Back to School, they're not Wong Jing films. I think a lot of them were creatively led by Stephen Chow. So by the time he took on the official credit for this, like we had no, probably Stephen Chow probably directed many of his films by that point, at least at least uncredited. So it's interesting to see how his um, this sort of right in the middle of where his directorial style has refined quite a lot by the time you get to Shaolin Soccer or Kung Fu Hustle. But you know he's already gone past the sort of amateur time, and this shows a lot of his ambitions in terms of action and and comedy and his 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 ambition for you know what he can do with budget that he has. And in that sense, I think this film is brilliant um, in terms of lampooning China, lampooning sort of channeling the fears of the Hong Kong audience at the time. And he and it just packs so many references, both from the James Bond franchise, from different franchises, uh, from the Western films, but also in the dialogue itself. Uh, you know, the um, Lok Ha Ying's character's name, they keep calling him Mansi, 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 because Man Sai in, China, in Cantonese is sniffing vagina. So they keep repeating that. That's why he doesn't want to be called by that by his last two characters. <laughs> That's why he keeps wanting to be um, called by his full name, which I think is the Chinese for Da Vinci. I have to double check. But but then you, if you only read the last two characters, it's, it's it's like Cantonese slang for sniffing vagina. So that's why they keep repeating that. And and then you have the execution scene, which is such great physical comedy, but also great political satire. And everything just works on so many levels. Even the name of the Anita Yuan character, Lei Han Kam. Lei Han Kam is a famous, uh, I think, actress from the Cantonese black and white film era who was still quite famous at the time. And they make a gag about how his mother is named Lei Han Lan. Lei Han Lan was actually a well-known Japanese national who grew up in China, was a star in China, was known to be a traitor because she starred in all these Japanese propaganda films with a Chinese name. And so she's a famous sort of quote-unquote traitor to the Chinese, even though she was Japanese the entire time, a fact that she hid throughout World War II. So yeah, you have to kind of know all these sort of many references surrounding it to get all the references that he's making in the film, even though they may not carry the subtitles or he may not spell those out um, directly. It's just multiple levels of brilliance in this film. What would you do? In, because you, you've done subtitles. Is it, you, you have space issues. You can't pause the film yeah. and explain what's going on. So in the case of Loga Ying's name, would you put uh, like a little thing in the subtitles? Literally means sniffing vagina. Or there's no time to do that. You just have to just uh, not neglect, but uh, you, you, you just can't save all the jokes for a Western audience. You just cannot do it because, especially in Kent- Chinese dialogue, Cantonese dialogue, Mandarin dialogue, is that they go so fast that we tend to speak very quickly, which you can tell by the way I speak. Um, because I reflect 
the speed that I speak Cantonese at is that I speak very quickly. And we all speak so quickly that there is no room to add in. I would never add a parentheses, note, blah, blah, in the subtitle because I know people would never get to read it. So there is no point putting it in there. It distracts from the film, and it is impossible to, really. Unless I make up a different nickname. I would just make up a different nickname to sort of make a joke out of it. But otherwise, I would never try and explain the joke around that or the Lei Hern Kump joke or the Lei Hern Lan joke. I would never do that. I may I may make up an English equivalent, but I would never try and put a note in there and expect people to read all the references. But but here herein lies some of the problem when you get into that, because like uh, I, I always think back to this example in uh, Kung Fu Hustle, right, where Yun Chu and Yun Hua, they sit down with Bruce Lung's character at, at like the bar and they introduce themselves and as they introduce themselves, they uh, uh, he says, "Oh, uh, Yunwa says, oh, I'm Paris.' And this is this is in the English translation. I'm Paris, and and this is uh, Helen of Troy, right? That's what they chose to to use there. But that's not what they're saying. What they're saying is is uh, I'm Yang Guo, and this is Sulangnoi from Return of the Condor Heroes. So they're trying to make a sort of like a parallel, you know, cu- cultural." Thing, but it doesn't really work. I mean, if you understand what's being said and you compare it, it doesn't work at all. I mean, it may work on some levels for an international audience, but it's not, it's just not the same, right? It cannot be the same because then you have to have a note explaining your know, uncle and it's the only way. I would have said something like this Romeo, I'm Romeo into this Juliet, right? Like that's under easy. And like you have to realize the really famous couple of Anthony and Cleopatra or something. I think I've done something like that. But, you know, Paris and Helen will drive like, who Paris is? Who's Paris? But anyway, you have to you have to sort of presume that 99% of the audience don't know Cantonese, will not know who Yuan Guo Seolong is. So it's, you're in an impossible position of either directly translating and have 99% of people not understand what the reference is or do something less funny, but at least people will know what the joke is, what their humor is that, that they see, certainly... I, I'm of the mind that if you just say... If you just do the direct translation, I'm Yang Guo, and this is Siu Long Noi, then you'll have some audience members go, well, who's that? And then after the film, they might go look that up, and they'll be led to, you know, uh, possibly getting interested in, in another media title. Whereas with the throwaway joke of, you know, oh, oh, they're they're from Troy, you know, it's like, uh, I, don't, I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of on a different mind of that. Yeah, I think it's because we're both interested in the culture, right? I think we're, but I think because that film was made with Sony and made a global audience in mind, and and unfortunately, it was one of those things where you cannot expect the audience to do the work, and you sort of have to do the work for them, or you have, yeah, you have to do the work for them, and that's not only the way Americans are; that's the way sort of the global mass audience is when you try to make a film for the global mass audience because it was produced by a Hollywood company. So I could see why they make that joke, but I would have used it, like I said, I would have used a more, even more recognizable name instead of Paris and Helen and Troy. But yeah, it was a difficult position. And I agree with not doing your quality because again, I just don't want to, when you make a, a mass entertainment film, you I think you cannot expect the audience to do the work. Co- uh, complex jokes you need need to be in the know but thankfully at the same time this is a james bond spoof and a lot of people are in the know uh, this franchise was on hiatus in 94 i'm sure they were planning goldeneye but that was a film that was released after this one so, so there was no james bond film for for a good part of the 90s the, the last one before 
GoldenEye was licensed to kill in 1989, and uh, that was it. But still, you audiences would recognize uh, the sound cues that uh, evokes the James Bond score. Obviously, the film opens with a pre-credits sequence a la James Bond adventure, often a separate adventure to the one with, that we're going to get. This one does connect to the main plot. So it opens, you know, soundly. Because it's a big base and military hardware, and you know it's it's supposed to evoke that uh, you know that that uh, the curtain split and uh, they present a new James Bond adventure, and uh, so they're, they're wise to uh, to have looked at the movies that way and uh, therefore open it in in the way that you uh, that that you expect. And also going into Stephen Chow movies way back when, you know, I I knew the rep that this was a local comedian, so. Would I have any shot at understanding anything? And most often, even if I only get a fragment of uh, the jokes here, most often I often walk away feeling that there was enough visual humor and, uh, you know, that type of comedy for me to st- uh, stay with the film and uh, and stay with the makers. I was never locked out completely as a Westerner, which, which I was, was always grateful for. And from Beijing with Love certainly hits on on visual cues throughout uh, that so so it isn't a, a movie filled with Cantonese puns or anything so there, there's always that balance which I as a as a viewer have, have never going to get a chance to to, to because I, I'm mere languages They're, it's just terrible so I can, I can never learn Cantonese no matter if I watch 100 films a day or whatever so uh it strikes a visual balance. Obviously, that extends to the opening credits where we get uh, pretty ladies in silhouettes and a cool, calm, collected uh, hero. And the theme the theme of the film is reflected in, you know, obviously the Chinese flag is everywhere. And then they end the credit sequence with some visual silliness. Uh, and it's, it may seem like simple gags just to throw the, the, the lady that you're dancing with in the silhouettes off screen and maybe a cat will make a noise as, it, as she crashes off screen and then because that is Steven at least in the latter part of the that sequence you, you can even in the silhouette you can sort of spot that that's Steven so I've, I've always admired him for being so good at uh, at visual humor in this case almost miming it it's not dialogue based and uh, that got me in an instant good mood watching this uh, Once Upon a Time. But it's a fun James Bond spoof. It's a short package. They're not overstuffing it. They're not too ambitious with uh, what they're doing. It's a nice mixture of uh, what you've come to know about Stephen Chow and what you know already, hopefully, of uh, of the James Bond uh, franchise. So uh, it all uh, it all breaks up uh, nicely and balances nicely between uh, verbal stuff, visual stuff, bloody stuff. And sometimes bloody stuff mixed with comedic stuff. So uh, uh, he achieves uh, that uh, uh, that balance. So I don't know if Lo Ying is he considered more of a dramatic actor or more a comedic actor in you guys in you guys' uh, estimation? Lo Ying is actually well known as a uh, 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 opera performer, Cantonese opera performer, and quite a well known one for that. Um, I think he found his sort of comedy. Around the '90s, I think thanks to Stephen Chow, actually, he wasn't—he wasn't actually known for doing a lot of comedies until the '90s. But before that, he was a very respected, uh, legendary sort of a veteran. Uh, even till now, even to this day, is still very much a leader among that circle, um, along with his wife or his partner, um, Liza Wen. 
yeah, no, he he's actually much better known as a as an op, a Cantonese opera performer before that. Uh, yeah, I'm a I'm a big fan of La Ying, and you know, as somebody who follows uh, Cantonese opera well, I knew of his Cantonese opera background, and I think it's he he brings a very strong stage presence to his comedy. Um, and he's and, essentially, by the way, Q of this film. We we forgot to say. Yeah, that. he 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 he's he's taking on the Q role, but he's very bad at his job here. But yeah, he's I mean, he's a great comedic presence, and uh, he's somebody that I you know really look forward to anytime. He's in a film, even if it's a Category 3 film. <laughs> so there's that. So, so of course, they, they run through the sort of Bond money penny scene um, that almost involves inappropriate groping, which is a sh- shameless piece of uh, verbal exchange, but still very funny. And then we have the Q-Lab walkthrough. Of course, we're going to have that. As uh, is uh, the one Cam Kong and Stephen Chow are walking through the Q-Lab and, uh, and logging as Q, I suppose, stops in and they're... I'm sure there's a ton of stuff that uh, obviously we're missing here. I mean, there's a bit between Stephen Chow and Wong Kam Kong where I think they, they've done their best to translate it, but I'm sure it's simply not fun, not as funny unless you know Cantonese. They talk about, have you seen Jurassic Park? No, I've seen Jurassic Park. They have a little bit about about that, about dinosaurs and what have you. And I'm sure that sort of low volume, dry deadpan exchange works so much better in Cantonese but I'm a great fan of that you know as I said just shoot performers sometimes and have that back and forth and that that sometimes represents the biggest belly laughs uh, in a Stephen Child movie for me so Uh, the thing is what's hilarious about Stephen Chow's comedy, especially to us locals, is the wordplay. He crams so much wordplay into one sentence into single lines that it's impossible to to translate the in the subtitles um i read i read it in the english subtitles for the first time because I w- i'm doing this podcast with you guys so i wanted to get the the terms uh, at least on the same level you know so i so i watched the english subtitles for the first time and i'm not saying i could do it better i'm just saying the ones that are on netflix are sort of the the version that doesn't have any personality that doesn't carry any of chow's personality in the film so even a film that even a scene that seems to be an ordinary dialogue scene actually has a ton of sort of references. For example, there's a whole toilet scene after a uh, the, the shoot on the mall, and he goes in and talks about you know giving money for the disease to to the deceased to the the dead, uh, the dead's family, and they have this back and forth about where the money is going to come from, how much to pay, and blah blah blah. And he says at the end, the, the dialogue keeps it very simple. He says, "Yeah, I'm not going to owe you the money," but he says. Yeah, you know, I don't owe I don't owe anyone on something like money for the deceased. Like I'm not gonna owe you because it's money for the deceased. But he says it in about five words of Cantonese, just because you know that's how Cantonese works. That there's a lot of shortening in Cantonese that works. That's how we speak. We all speak in code, and we all speak in shortened versions of the full phrases in Cantonese. So it's very very difficult to sort of translate all of Stephen Chow's wordplay. But even in scenes where it seems like ordinary people speaking, but even then there's a, a few, quite a few gags or quite a few colloquialism of Cantonese that us Cantonese speakers will appreciate the way they speak, that they speak like real Cantonese speakers, you know. How good are you by this point, um, Paul? Because you, you're used to the films and, you know, Cantonese to a degree. Is like, how good are you at uh, picking up um, what's... Uh, being said in the dialogue or you're you are reliant on subtitles when it comes to comedy no for stephen chow's wordplay there's you know no i can't <laughs> there, <laughs> there's there's no book on that you've you've either got to have somebody sitting next to you explaining it you know because as kevin as kevin said they're not going to write 
the the stuff in there. So you've got a you you can hear a phrase, but there may be five or six meanings. You may understand the phrase, but there may be five or six additional meanings going on, you know, because it, the wordplay can be so complex, you know, as different words compound together and things. And there may be local meanings that are just from that era that, you know, the person next to you may not even know because they weren't, you know, in Hong Kong at, at, during that time and place. So there's usually there as, he, he does stuff like that and it can be very hard to parse out. As I said, we're not going to spoil a ton of gags, but we have referenced it. So why don't you, Paul, explain to the kind listeners why the Solar Torch Q gadget gag is such a funny one. It's not necessarily totally Cantonese-language-based. It's, it's, it's a visual gag, too. So why don't you spoil that particular gag? It, it has no bearings on the plot. It's not like it has a reveal towards the end that solves the plot. Which is a shame because I was so, you know, the first time I watched this back in the day, I was like so hoping that it would come back into play. But, it's you know, <laughs> it's, a, it's a solar flashlight. <laughs> and how do you get it to work in the dark? Well, you use another flashlight. <laughs> and that's why I mean, I'm so it, glad that Stephen Chow movies uh, were able to, they were able to travel fa- thanks to examples like that. Because that, that kills me. That kills me, and, and it's so. I, I'm sure they they worked out those beats on set. Can't be too quick. T- can't be too fast. To for you know for him to pull out pull out the second torch, and that that's the guy. That that needs to feel correct, man. You can't just like uh, cut print move it on like Edward style with these things. And and Lock Ying is so serious about it. And that's what really sells it. It's just you know, <laughs> he's got other devices uh, that that come into play later, but that one just floors me every time because it's just you know the timing and the way he sells it with his facial expression and his physicality is just it's brilliant yeah i think the brilliance of law kyings or at least his funniest performances are those where he doesn't know he's funny the thing is when, when when he's too obvious that he's telling you he's trying to be funny like they're not funny but then when he knows he's when he stops trying to be funny and just sort of speak at, in his own way or he tries to sell whatever he's selling. It just becomes funny because he's not trying to be funny. And I think those are the best Lockhartian gags. And and I spoke of uh, when performers uh, are just occupying the frame. Uh, there's nothing hugely technical going on here that that works. And we, we obviously have many scenes with uh, we really didn't mention her as part of the plot that, that Anita Yun is here as an assassin. And uh, she has many scenes with uh, Stephen Chow's uh, spy and uh, Obviously, that's, you know, those contain many gags that uh, I think everyone is going to quote once they're uh, seen the film uh, once or twice. We won't uh, perhaps uh, talk of uh, their particular gags, but let me go around the room. Just basically ask, for instance, you, Paul, uh, Anita and Stevens, uh, comic chemistry, even dramatic chemistry. Does it work for you as those characters uh, occupy the frame uh, more extensively? If I'm being completely honest, I would have to say not always. I, you know, you talked a little bit before about uh, the film um, He's a Woman, She's a Man. And I think that uh, that's a, a stronger performance for her in terms of chemistry and pairing when she's paired off with Leslie. I mean, here she's kind of being the straight man for Stephen Chow, and, and that's fine. And, you know, kind of her her the role she's playing as this assassin type character who's working against him and then kind of working with him, uh, you know, this, this kind of back and forth tension they have. It's there, but I don't think it really 
you know, uh, I don't think it's a highlight for her in terms of roles that she had around this period. The thing is, Anita Yuan is always good. I mean, that was that year when she won her third Hong Kong Film Award for Best Actress in a Row. I think that's still a record that no one's beaten. So we all know it, that Anita Yuan is a great actress, but that was also a point where she was overworked and she was doing too many films a year and she was there to be the sort of the big female lead in a big Stephen Chow film. And that's she was good for that, but um, she's not exactly one of the better sort of comic foils of Stephen Chow. Not not on the level of, say, Karen Mock in God of Cookery or not on the level of... Um, of who else? Uh, I need Athena Chu in the the Chinese Odyssey movies. Not on that level, certainly. But you know, Anita Yuan is great, but not exactly as great as she could be. But I, you know, I, I enjoyed watching her performance, especially when she sort of let loose and and does the Stephen Chow humor thing. When you know, like when she towards the end, when she sort of breaks out, when she starts swearing, and when she starts sort of showing more for her her personality. I think that that was fun. But as far as being one of the better um, female leads of a Stephen Chow film, uh, sort of in the middle. She's fine. Yeah, at least uh, it's complemented by because I, I I kind of agree, and I, I was I was more of a fan of dramatic and and um, Anita Yun than uh, comedic and spunky. Anita Yun works very well, and he's a woman, she's a man. Less so in like Thunderbolt and the uh, the Leon Lai God of Gamblers film and things like that. But uh, obviously, she she gets to be part of. Uh, the 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 quoted visual gags like the gun who shoots uh, one way one way and then uh, the other way when you shoot it a second time and that leads to obviously bodily harm and you know bodily horror really because it is a violent film and then it gets to walk around with those limp uh, shot arms <laughs> and it, it, it's a it's a fun little gag that they that they have and I, I enjoy uh, their back and forth when he is showing off the different. Uh, gadgets that are all that are all they're, they're not really spy gadgets they're travel items shavers and dryers but there are actually different things his phone is a shaver his dryer is also something you shave your face with and, and so forth like those back and forth bits that are just the camera f- focused on them a, a simple two shot and whatever gets me quite well you know those are the belly laughs uh, and uh, I, I enjoy when steven is keeping it on the down low he's not uh, you know pulling his tongue out or anything like that uh, it's just very seems anyway very dry and deadpan as the, as a director together with Lilik Chi there's a good comedic timing as his scene changes uh, I think Anita Yun shoots her gun in the ceiling in one scene and I'm not sure we saw anything fall on her head but the direction is quite effective because we cut to two Simpsons band-aids on her forehead in the next scene and she's kind of pissed about it and those are comedic uh, beats that you're creating editing obviously and planning that uh, works uh, very well for me as well if they had uh, if they had permission to do the simpsons uh, band-aids i'm not too sure i'm pretty sure they didn't so in terms of violence and darkness it is a lot more than you expect out of a Stephen Chow film. Maybe not out of a Hong Kong film. That a Hong Kong film can go from gunplay to comedy and bloodshed. We're kind of fine with But was it ever jarring seeing this movie take such bloody, gory turns as it did? If we start with you, Kevin. Oh, it's just part of the fun that they're, they're going for it in such a gleeful way, almost. 
No, very, very jarring. At least for me, when I was watching as a 10-year-old, it was very jarring. Like, it's still, for now, even now, it's still disturbingly violent. I mean, especially in the first half. The second half, it gets a little bit cartoonish, but you still have bodies exploding and someone getting um, bullet dug out by a, what was it, a hammer and a screwdriver, which is <laughs> which is cartoonish. It's cartoonish, but that cross really crossed the line, I think, in that robbery scene in the mall. And it's just some very nasty stuff in there too. And the thing is knowing Steven Chow is that he goes very nasty to make you get a reaction out of you when something else happens. For example, he sends his characters to rock bottom so that when they rise up, then it's then you feel even more satisfied. That's a book that's a you know typical Hong Kong cinema sort of rule of screenwriting, right? Is to make to never feel sympathy enough for your characters to, you know, drag them through the mud so that you feel better when they when they kind of rise up and stand back up. That's sort of the play playbook. But it is certainly one of the most violent, I think, violent uh, Stephen Chow films, even even to now. Do 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 you think it's coming from uh, being influenced by the kung fu film tradition or the wuxia film tradi- tradition? Because uh, obviously he has his uh, butcher's knife, which might as well have been a sword. Um, do you think it might have come from that as a sort of a honorary thing, or that uh, he liked the way those uh, Shaw Brothers films uh, paint of his green in blood? Or as a filmmaker, he's certainly always been influenced by wuxia films and wuxia stories and that thing, but. You can say that as it's much of popular culture in Hong Kong. So many filmmakers are influenced by the way, by just as the way that Viking story influenced uh, Western cinema or just as um, the Greeks, you know, Greek culture or whatever, you know, those things influence or uh, influence Western cinema. So it's sort of a very prevailing pop culture thing that it's just everyone sort of takes a little bit from that genre or takes a little bit from those stuff so it's not like a specific for let's just say it's not going to be like a, the thesis of a scholarly paper it's just the way that everyone does it and he sort of does it. and because he's a he, everyone knows he's a huge fan of wuxia cinema and wuxia culture and wuxia popular culture that he just does it that i think that was your question but per the violence i think to this day is still one of his most violent films and uh, and it's just the way hong kong cinema operated oh for sure i mean i mean the, the whole sequence in the pre the credits thing. I think Yurong Guang is here, and you you got like hardcore Hong Kong cinema gunplay. That wasn't jarring at all because yeah, I expect this. This is fun, but uh, you realize that the movie isn't done with it, um, and it's going to center it not around uh, any uh, side characters, but uh, it, it's uh, it's placing the violence uh, from uh, from uh, the main characters. Uh, so they dish that out. Uh, it does feel rather gross and jarring, and I was looking at. My God, was this category three? As a matter of fact, I don't think it was, and I don't think they had amended the category two at this point either. There was category two by that point, but there was no category two A and two B right. at that point yet. Um, but I will find. I will say this is pretty funny is that I realized that the Netflix version of subtitles did not have a single curse word in it, which means whoever decided that the curse word. Or whoever decided on the quality of subtitles, or whoever decided that there can't be any cursor of subtitles, is more worried about the cursing getting the film in trouble than the extreme <laughs> violence on the screen, which I find, which is true. Because, for example, films that I have subtitled, they get edited for airline distribution. And, you know, the violence go out uncut, and, and yet they go and replace every curse word that starts with damn and above. 
And I find that just hilarious. And I'm sure a Hong Kong agency did the subtitles and tried it and was told by someone to avoid all the curse words, despite all the extreme violence on screen. I think if you're not prepared for it, it's definitely more violence than you are going to expect if you've not seen, you know, at least more recent Stephen Chow stuff. But this is where I think it comes down to his craft as a, as a visionary director to be able to sort of ride this line, this fine line between gore and sentiment and comedy that not many films and filmmakers can achieve well. I mean, take, for example, the bleeding leg surgery scene, okay? I mean, so basically to set it up, Anita Yun's character, is he's been shot in the leg and is going to perform surgery to get the bullet out, and she's using a a hammer and a (laughs) screwdriver, as, as alluded to. He puts on porn to distract himself because there's no an- no anesthetic right so that that's his anesthetic by the way that is a film called educating mandy yeah. that is true it's how a real film. did you know that <laughs> why it's on wikipedia i don't know so, if sure 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 anyway, it's from wikipedia sure it's from wikipedia. so so you have that going on and then there's like blood just you know oozing out and and he's reacting and at the same time you are getting a riff on a song he plays on piano earlier, which is a Jackie Chung song, um, the name of which um, I, I, I won't spoil it with my poor Cantonese here, but I think it's a an, it's the, the, the name of Anita Yun's character's mother, which is a reference back to, uh, I think, a Japanese actress. So a- anyway, so you have the riff of that Jackie Chung song playing while this is going on. So you've got gore, you've got sentiment, and you've got his reaction, and and so it's this comedic mashup that's going on. But it works really well because it's during this time you get reactions from Anita Yun with the music, and 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 this is a kind of like a turning point for him because she's the one, you know, who you know caused this whole mess in the first place. And you don't kind of you don't get this kind of dark, gory comedy anywhere else really. I mean, even if you look at at stuff like you know I want to say like the scary movie franchise or naked gun or something like hot shots where they're doing a parody of a genre there might be violence there might be you know there's going to be humor but there's not going to be kind of body gore mixed in there right you know he goes to these places that not many other people go and and he knows how to sort of ride that line without pushing it too far i think yeah it's the surgery scene that there's one moment that really got me and where I was thinking like, man, did they cross over to category three with that? Because the, the butcher's knife goes uh, across the bullet wound, which is obviously prosthetic, but uh, that, that that got to me and I'm, I'm a gore hound. I, I, I can take most things. Uh, but uh, it, it it's, uh, it's a mix of moods in that scene that, that requires dramatic acting as well while porn is playing and while, <laughs> you know, while all this is going on. So, and you, you think too, like I mean, if, for those who've seen The Mermaid, right, the scene where they're at the sushi bar with Sholo, right, and just the concept of that is so gross, <laughs> but it's so funny at the same time. You know, he's able to he's able to mash these things up that make you kind of want to retch and laugh <laughs> all in one. So it's a talent for sure. Did uh, they uh, overdo the Jackie Chung jokes or just the right amount of Jackie Chung jokes in this one? Because he features a bit, he features a fair bit actually across the dialogue, and there's a bit of singing too. Well, I mean, Jackie Chan was the biggest pop star at the time, so it's easy. I mean, he makes this, he also makes a Jackie Chan or a Havlin Kings joke in Love on Delivery, 
uh, which came right after this. Which is in as well. Doesn't he cameo in that? Uh, doesn't he give like Stephen Chow, Jackie Chung tickets? <laughs> yes, yes. I think it was probably like the cameo. Yeah, it's a very short cameo. But yeah, no, Jackie Chung, the song is is the, the key. The song is a very much key to the character because uh, it's referring to a real person that once you hear that name, you know, oh, yeah, of course, that person is a traitor. So that's how famous Lei Hern Lam was as a, in pop culture. To to tie in that song, I think that song was a huge hit at the time. By the way, which by the way, that song, the original Japanese version of that song is called Ikanaide by Anzen Chitai, and that was a theme song for a Japanese biographical series about Lei Hern Lan. So it all connects back to, and of course, Lei Hern Lan is the the name of Anita Yuan's character, uh, and the mother's mother uh, character. So it all sort of connects back. Uh, and so and I don't think it was too much. I quite dug it the little I understood of it, of course. Uh, but I guessed it was a Jackie Chung song, uh, just by going by gut feeling uh, as he sat down at the piano. Stephen Charles character, at least he sung it in 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 the way Jackie would have sung it anyway. Um, just well, yeah, off. actually he didn't sing it. Actually, a, a fa- much more famous and better singer. Walking, I forgot his English. Uh, I forgot his English name, but he. I just found on Wikipedia he is not Stephen Chow's voice. Yes, he had a real singer dub over his voice. Uh, she's not in it as much, but I wanted to highlight that uh, Pauline Chan is in this film after a, um, a few years of making Category 3 movies. Uh, she's um, she's in Escape from Brothel, for instance, and uh, she plays this uh, villain that, uh, well, they, they, they sexualize her, of course, because she's Pauline Chan. But obviously uh, she has a bit of weaponry in her boobage uh, area, as we see towards the end of the film. It's a little role. I, I, I think it's fun as a fan of Category 3 film, as the smut, it's nice to see when uh, actresses make um, co- uh, go into commercial endeavors. And uh, obviously we won't do it here because it's a sad story, but uh, you know, she uh, her her career uh, uh, didn't last and, uh, and uh, she had some uh, mental health issues uh, later in her life and um, she... Uh, she uh, uh, she committed suicide uh, later in life, uh, but it's it's nice to see her her here. Her, her role feels like it should have been a little bit. Um, there, there should have been more, and uh, we'll get to that uh, theory that this movie had. Uh, well, well, we we know firsthand that this movie had more scenes because they do play it at the end of the film. But uh, I'm thinking that uh, she might have had one or more two scenes her character. But uh, anyway, it's it's fun to see a little James Bond. Uh, a sexualized James Bond thing, which I suppose is not uh, a surprise, but they they do put like uh, fl- uh, flamethrowers in her boobage area towards the end of the film, uh, Pauline Chan. So, again, talking about sort of how this stuff feeds back to to each other. If you look at like the way the fembots kill people in the Austin Powers movie, it's kind of you know borrowing from this. So. Sure. Uh, so some further little uh, to just to round off the notes here uh, of course we, we have a version of Jaws here but it's kind of Jaws and the Terminator mixed in one he, has, uh, he, he doesn't have metal teeth uh, this particular Jaws-esque-ish character but the gold teeth I thought it was bad teeth first but I think it's gold uh, I think it's gold teeth as a matter of fact that's uh, a, little, a little ding from the James Bond uh, uh, franchise and, and by the way the bullet extraction scene co- contains a little bit reminiscent of the killer as well the, the john woo film so uh western fans will kind of recognize uh, when they when they burn off the the gunpowder across uh, uh across the wound that is kind of straight out of the killer i think i i do have some minor sort of notes and references to go through like bit, bit by bit towards the end of my notes i'm going to conclude them now and uh the, the the only thing I kind of want to set up is that uh, it, it's unusual actually they normally have a montage 
at the end of the film. Or maybe some outtakes. But these credits show uh, at least two deleted bits. Uh, one very funny uh, alternate bit or extended bit with the magic box springboard contraption that uh, that Steven Chow has from QLab that allows him to be launched into a party scene. But he fails at it multiple times. There's a deleted bit or alternate bit in the credits where I, I, I suppose we see him get launched. And then we cut to him arriving in a taxi. Because he was launched in, in geographically way off base. So he arrives in a taxi and he, he has to ask Anita for money. So he can pay the taxi and then they're back at square one. To, to set up the springboards, to correct the angle, to make sure he gets launched over the wall into the party. That killed me. But it's not in the film. And there's also a scene that I don't know the context of. Where Anita Yun is in a burning building with Stephen Chow and they, they hug. And that is not in the film either. I, I, I couldn't figure out its context. But uh, they put it here. Whether it wa- if, whether if it wasn't an edit and then taken out but left in the credits, I'll, I'll leave it up for debate. But uh, as, as we talked of, 83 minutes seems awfully short. So maybe we had seven minutes here that was taken out before it uh, opened in cinemas. Uh, the Taiwanese version is not longer. Uh, it's actually on DVD, the Taiwanese version. And people have said that, no, that, that's... That's the same. It certainly doesn't have those scenes that we saw in the closing uh, credits. So uh, it's a curious thing. But um, uh, keep an eye out for uh, for some deleted bits, I suppose. So let's go around the room before I uh, tick off some quick uh, pointers uh, towards the end from the trivia section on um, Wikipedia. So uh, anything uh, you want to mention, uh, Paul, uh, from the film? It's a classic film. It's a must-see for fans of James Bond films or spoofs or, you know, if you've never seen it. And I, I was kind of dis, dismayed that as I was kind of going through and, and doing some research, I came across quite a few lists of, you know, the best uh, spy spoofs, the best James Bond spoofs. And this was not among any of them. I think people should, you know, if you're you're not uh, familiar with it, get it out of your comfort zone and uh, and check it out. Well, I mean, for us, it's more than just a James Bond spoof. For us, is a political satire that is still quite relevant today, especially today in Hong Kong. So for us, it's quite an important film to remain in the public conversation, to remain in the public sphere, for people to keep making memes out of it, because it says so much that we can't say. And I find it quite ironic that now Stephen Chow, for the last decade and a half, has now chosen to play for the other team, that he's quite deep in the Chinese film industry and by the way has not come to Hong Kong to promote any of his films since I can't remember since maybe CJ7 not even uh, not even New King of Comedy nope nope never came he, he got as far as Shenzhen and he's never came back into Hong Kong to do a public appearance for any film it's quite ironic that he said so much for Hong Kongers that he's so important he's such an important filmmaker for Hong Kongers that he's so beloved about Hong Kongers and yet he has completely, completely abandoned Hong Kong um, in the last decade and a half, which I was so from Beijing of Love, I think might have been one of sort of remnants of an old Stephen Chow that we never see again. So um, I pulled some, just to finish this one off, uh, I pulled some trivia from um, from the internet, from the wiki, I suppose. So uh, let's just check around the room to see if they spotted it or if it's even correct, because uh, that's what Wikipedia is. Supposed to uh, be about as well, uh, correct, correcting the misinformation that was put on there. So, what do you think, Kevin? The name, uh, quote, the name of the film in Chinese means, quote, the, the domestically produced 007. 
yeah, they're Chinese produced 007, yeah. So Ling 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 is zero zero, and then Tut is seven. But then you can also change the character to have the sound, but different characters, so that it's not zero zero seven. But then once you read it out, it's obviously double seven. Yeah. And furthermore, the scene where Stephen Chow, uh, this is all quoted, uh, by the way, uh, the scene where Chi- Stephen Chow drinks a dry martini is a reference to a she- scene from Chunking Express where Tony Leung Chiwai drinks coffee. I wouldn't have caught that in a million years. A fan of that film or not? Yeah, the slow motion. Yeah. I think a slow motion is, a, is an intentional parody, yeah. Is furthermore the scene where Stephen Chow meets Anita Yun wearing a green blouse in the park uh, feeding dogs is a, is a direct reference to a scene in the film C'est la vie mon chéri also featuring Anita Yun. little sly reference but I get it. I, I can conjure up images from C'est la vie mon chéri with uh, Anita Yun uh, uh, crouching on the ground. So Not proven. I don't think anyone actually came out and said something like that. It's not as obvious as someone like something like Chunky Express because because you know that was such a normal Hong Kong audience would see that scene in Chunking Express and say that's pretentious as hell, and then Stephen Chow make fun of it. That's that's obvious, right? But the thing is, something like Sailor V Manchuri of of you know, and even with a puppy, you know, it, it's almost too not iconic enough for it to be a direct reference. I'm not sure. I'm not so sure. Uh, furthermore, the name of the ultimate weapon that is invented, and I believe it's re- it's uh, it's the weapon that comes out at the end, uh, the, the ten weapons in one. So the name of the ultimate weapon invented, uh, called Life Taker Three Thousand, is also the name of a. I, I can't obviously do it in Chinese. It's obviously the name of a Hong, uh, is the name of a Hong Kong low budget blue movie, meaning that it's possibly referencing a category three movie title. And even though I'm deep into uh, the smart and all, I. I don't know. I'm not familiar with the Chinese title of Sex and Zen or Erotic Ghost Stories. I don't know if that weapon, Life Taker 3000, said in Chinese, evokes a famous Category 3 movie or not. I don't think so. I think there was like a, a time when people named products 3000 to say like it's the ultimate upgrade. It's like, oh, it's so famous from the year 3000, that kind of thing. I think, I think. But we, we make fun of it all the time. We say something in 3000, like, because it's like the ultimate model, right? It's like the advanced super, super model of that, yeah, whatever such product Such a is. funny fucking guy, too. When when he yeah. shows the thing he has invented, like, there's not even a great Swiss army knife. It's like a couple of random, like, kitchen appliances tied together with grass or string. This is the ultimate thing. <laughs> yeah, if I was subtitling it, because in, this, in the subtitle I watched, it was like, killing 3000. I would have said, like, kill your ass 3000, because that's sort of the level of the silliness of that title, Lolly. Life Taker 3000, I would say kill your ass 3000. That's why we called it. <laughs> and we got three more little tri- trivia bits that are either obvious or not obvious. So the scene where the camera pans slowly around the room of various James Bond posters to focus on Stephen Chow combing his hair and admiring himself in the mirror is a parody of the last scene of Days of Being Wild, in which Tony Leung prepares to go out. The music used is the same. I wouldn't have caught that. I'm, I'm out of the Wonka Wai loop. And I haven't seen that film. So what what do you think, Kevin? Is that spot on or not? If you remember Days of Being Wild. 100%. Because they even did the wide shot of him in the in the cellar. Like, even the shot, the wide shot is parody. Because that's what the most infamous, like, what the hell was that scene in that area? Like, like no one knew where that Tony Learned scene is going. It's so nonsensical to the rest of the story that it's kind of become a classic. But yeah. It's absolutely a reference to that. It's re- it, absolutely because it was a popular thing to make fun of Wong Kar Wai in that period. So it was absolutely a parody of Wong Kar Wai because it was the hip thing to do to make fun of Wong Kar Wai. Did you caught any of that, Paul, the, the, the Wong Kar Wai references or uh, those images haven't stayed with you as such? Sorry, who are we talking about? 
Wong Kar Who? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I thought this was original scenes. <laughs> the, the only Wong Kar Wai movie I've seen multiple times is uh, Ashes of Time. So, well, if we if we consider Eagle Shooting Heroes a Wong Kar Wai movie, then yeah, that 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 one takes the cake. But um, no, those are not seen without trivia. I would not recognize those. And the final two, uh, quite obvious ones: uh, the Universe Laser DVD cover of the of the film from Beijing with Love parodies that of the nineteen eighty seven James Bond movie, The Living Daylights. And that's that's something that popped up popped up in my head immediately. So, and finally, the Golden Gun signature weapon uh, is a spoof of the golden gun used in the james bond novel the man with the golden gun but unlike the one from the james bond series uh, this one in from beijing with love shoots out extremely powerful explosive bullets instead of a one-hit fatal fragmentation bullet so they upped the ante and uh, uh, added, added some armor to the villain of, of the film uh, to walk around in uh, as uh, as well it's funny that scene by the way i, I was talking about uh, the when steven chow has dispatched of the villain you 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 can hear a lot of blood spurt, but not see a lot of blood spurt. And there's some jump cuts in that in that scene as he goes uh, onto, onto his knees, the villain. And you you can hear the audio jump a little bit. So there are little hints of censorship here that, that the movie was taking uh, its uh, bloodshed a little bit too far, a tiny bit too far. But I that's the only reference where I noticed that uh, the movie becomes a little jumpy. It's not like the whole mall scene and uh, that bloodshed seems uh, truncated or anything like that. So um, uh, Okay, well, well, as for availability then, uh, there's no real shortage of uh, video versions uh, throughout the years in Hong Kong, including on Laserdisc, DVD and now Blu-ray. It was on Netflix, Netflix US at least for a bit. It's on Netflix Hong Kong currently, as... Um, as I came and said, is it? Um, it was um, English subtitled on Netflix Hong Kong as well. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Even though it is a different uh, translation uh, versus, uh, for instance, the the old Blu-ray. Uh, uh, well, the new Blu-ray with the old translation. They didn't uh, do a, re- uh, a redo. But anyway, uh, there are digital versions out there. And by now, when you listen to this, a Region B Blu-ray edition uh, should be out from UK's Eureka Entertainment. It's pr- probably going to be good because it has new subtitles i hope anyway but also it's going to be in mono thank you know the laser disc was in mono great uh but it is laser disc the dvd they remixed the audio to to quite distracting uh levels and the blu-ray is also a remix only so i've never seen the movie kind of as it was supposed to sound like it sounds a bit distracting with the new uh kabalooey sounds and new uh uh, gun gunplay foley and things like that so um and as big as the movie was it was not mixed in uh, in dolby's around back in the day it was a mono film so that blu-ray will be um in uh, in mono sound and uh, all of that so looking forward to that personally because um it really irks me that um when you don't get options the dvd didn't give you any options the blu-ray didn't give you any any options so it was five 5.1 or nothing as Paul, by the way, found out firsthand, by the way, speaking of digital versions, they're English dubbed only. So if you're curious about the English dub, fine, but you're not getting the option. The option to listen to it in uh, Cantonese, hearing Stephen Chow's real voice and all of that. Uh, so that's a bit of a bummer. So ke- keep your eye out for um, for the di- digital version. Uh, normally you expect it to be uh, a done deal that you don't need to analyze that. Of course, it's going to be original uh, language. Uh, or at least uh, two audio options, but in this case, the digital versions of From Beijing with Love, English dubbed um, 
only. So thanks, guys, for taking part, for uh, providing illuminating uh, facets uh, of, uh, of matters that I, I can't personally uh, personally pick up on. So it's always an education to listen to you guys um, with a greater Cantonese perspective than I, for instance, have, and uh, certainly a greater Hong Kong perspective than I ever will be able to. So thanks for uh, taking part in this. And uh, so uh, we're going to go through the contact information there really quickly again and you you can plug whatever you like at the end so for all your podcast on fire network needs including the back catalog of podcast on fire on the website podcastonfire.com get us wherever you find podcasts either apple podcasts spotify or wherever you find them so that's me uh, plugged out uh, anything uh, you want to mention uh, paul you, you know you're on blu-ray disc but uh, we've heard that plug already so uh, and anything else particular you want to mention uh, not at the moment, so I'll throw it over to Kevin. Wow, okay. Um, I am on Twitter, or X, I'm sorry, X, Twitter. I'm never calling X, by the way, never. And you can't say I'm on X, because people will be like, you said what? You what now? <laughs> yeah, no, kiss my ass, Elon. Sorry, I'm never calling X. I'm on post. I'm going to call it that. I'm on post. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I'm on Twitter. Uh, I am at the Golden Rock. That's when we're at the Golden Rock. I still post there. Um once in a while, uh, sharing Hong Kong film news when I'm allowed to share them. Uh, I can't talk about the films that I that I work on, but not announced yet. But upcoming, I think films that are making their way around the, the festival circuit. I, I English subtitled uh, Everything Everywhere, the new film by Abbas Y. I subtitled um, In Broad Daylight, which is a film by Lawrence Kahn. Um, that should be making its way. Uh, there's a film called Stand Up Story that's having its premiere in Chicago uh, at Sophia's Choice uh, Asian Pop-Up Cinema Festival, and it should be maybe making the rounds. I also subtitled Herman Yao's uh, Raid of the Lethal Song, which I think finally got its theatrical release recently, uh, made this week or whenever we're recording. Can I just say something? Herman Yao, which I've loved throughout the years, I was always used to him making uh, movies quick and often. But now he's making the big movies, and he's still making them often. It still seems like he uh, has three, four, five, six, seven, eight films going at once, and uh, I don't know. Well, no, he's making them often, but then the thing is, he sort of builds them up like the way that bears build up honey for, you know, whatever <laughs> hibernation. Like, he, he just sort of keeps building up films there in post-production, and he has, like, four films in post-production at once because he keeps finishing them, and the post-production people can't keep up. Because, like, White Storm 3 came out, and then someone posts a trailer for his new movie, like, a minute after. So it's like, yeah. wow, really? And, and I love it. Uh, but uh, it's like he's been at it for so many decades. Like, th- does he have the stamina? Apparently he does. And God bless him. Apparently his bank account really likes it. So, you know, <laughs> for Death Notice, for example, was made in 2018 and somehow just made it out. So somehow this year we've had four, we're going to have three to four Herman Yao films. So anyway, Herman Yao film, Lethal, yeah, Raid on the Lethal Zone is not the only Herman Yao film I, that, I, that I subtitled. I'm also subtitling uh, Customs Frontline, which stars uh, Jackie Chan. By the way, Jackie Chan and Nicholas A. That's coming out. I'm not sure when. And that's as far as I can go. I have a couple of projects that I'm working on, but I'm not sure if I can talk about those yet. But yeah, otherwise, those are the projects I know that are on the way uh, that will be coming soon. Excellent. Well, we're uh, we're grateful for you taking the time to. Um, uh, we're not taking you away from your film from your deadlines and so forth. So we're very grateful that uh, you have the time to uh, come on here. And same with you, Paul. I mean, we 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 have we, we don't have five six things going on. But we have a thing going on that that that's uh, well, it's a commentary that takes a few months to compile. So we can't talk about that either. It's not even for twenty twenty three release. But uh, we're doing stuff behind the scenes, and um, 
taking on new challenges um, and uh, trying to provide as much context and information as we can about the chosen film and its subjects uh, within. First rule about the commentary is we don't talk about the commentary. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Hope to hear you on a commentary again, Kevin. So maybe uh, again, uh, if they if they if they mention Juliet in love, just jump on that motherfucker immediately. <laughs> forget forget the yeah. commentary. Get back on CNN. Come on, <laughs> get off your butt. CNN, they're not covering Hong Kong cinema, so unfortunately, they're not coming to me, and no one's going right, to ask Fox me about Fox News. That. Come on, get on Fox uh, News. God. See, you know, you know, the the, the CCTV, uh, the English network has called me before, and then I kept turning them down. They stopped calling me, so because I don't want to find myself on CCTV. So, but yeah, um, I don't. TVB, want to be on TV. TVB, come on, do it, do it now. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not good on camera. I, I'm not gonna like. There was. Uh, so I now I'm an English editor of a of a magazine that's done by a. Well, they run. They they're a offshoot of Broadway Cinema, and they also have a cinema or free cinemas. They have a TV channel and things like that. And I'm now the English editor of the magazine, and it's a part time gig. Obviously, it's not a full time gig. They do bi monthly, but they've asked me kind of what I want to do. Which means they kind of ask, you know, what kind of what's the scope of my job? How much do I want to be exposed? And I said, I don't want to do any on-camera work. Just don't put me on camera. So um, with you, one hundred percent. That's why this podcast is never going on video, unless you want to watch a black screen. And we're not doing video commentaries. I'm not ever gonna do a, a, a on-camera interview for anything because it was just my anxieties would just spiral out of control and that would then definitely be put on a blu-ray online for people to point and laugh at and uh come on i'm not going you know you want to do you know you want to do podcast on fire tiktok just do it (laughs) i'm gonna dance to a jackie chung song (laughs) is that it i don't know I'm, 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 I'm keeping it old school behind like, like, like it wouldn't be beneficial to have a video of this process happening because all I'm doing is staring at the sort of pre-prepared document and that's not sexy. So, uh, that's, uh, that, that's for other professionals to, to do. I'm staying behind this microphone. Thanks guys again. I've been Kennedy and with me was, uh, Paul Fox. So say goodbye, buddy. Bye-bye. And TVs. Kevin Ma. Goodbye, everyone. I would not be on TV again tomorrow.